the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome to the Thursday, April the 19th edition of Lifeline. Trust you're doing well, having a great week so far. We're well into the week, and, uh, you know, we uh, had a talk with your boss. If you come in tomorrow... We've made an agreement to let you take the two following days after that off. Does that sound like a deal? I thought you'd be impressed. <laughs> hey, we got a great show lined up for you tonight. Hour number two, our continuing series on parenting. Vern Tyler from the Hosanna Parenting Project will be with us again tonight. More insights and details in dealing with a strong-willed child. And uh, this is good advice for, for young parents or even parents that have got kids that are up in their uh, teens and uh, you're already struggling with, you know, from the terrible te- twos to the terrible teens, and you wonder what to do. Well, some great biblical insights. Vern Tyler joins us in our continuing series tonight, 6 o'clock, here on KFAX, part of Lifeline. We've got Michael Bennett, also part of Lifeline, keep you on top of traffic as we make our way through the uh, commute home tonight. So a great place to keep your dial set right there. Relax and enjoy the ride. If you were with us yesterday, you know we spent a good portion of our conversation with Steve Deal from Forgiveness Ministries, focusing on the issue of restoration, reconciliation, relationships. And and certainly I think we could conclude that we as Christians, if anyone, should understand more about relationships and reconciliation and restoration than perhaps any others, because after all, we've experienced that in our relationship with God. We've seen God's grace shown toward us that has allowed us to engage in repentance, which has led to reconciliation, which has helped us to develop a relationship with the very God of the universe. Too bad, then, that as much as we ought to understand so much of this topic as the church, that seemingly on the horizontal plane, we get high failing marks. It was Martin Luther King Jr., who some years ago acknowledged that America is at its most racially divided Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Why exactly is that? And as we look at a divided world, we wonder perhaps one of the reasons why they don't pay much attention to the church is because we seem to be as divided as the world itself. So at the end of the day, what is the solution to this issue as we've seen debates, controversy, protests, even as recent as what's been going on at Starbucks. Many people asking the question, what is going on in America today? And most importantly, what role can and should the church be taking in leading about, in bringing about reconciliation amongst the races? A new book out called One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides, newly published by Regnery Press, 
and its author is the lead pastor and founder of Christ Church Ministry in New Jersey, Dr. David Ireland. Dr. Ireland, great to have you on the program tonight. My pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to your audience. This is a topic that we in the church, I think, oftentimes give mental assent to that we need to talk about, we need to address, we need to deal with. Some folks think that, well, uh, we maybe attend a church that looks um, fairly homogenous or, or, or perhaps uh, even diversified, and we feel as if, okay, job done. But in reality, we're we're tremendously falling short of the mark, not just in terms of what we ought to be doing as human beings, but most importantly, what you ought to be doing in terms of, of serving the Lord, aren't we? Uh, certainly we are. I, I always say that prejudice is everyone's problem. Therefore, reconciliation must be everyone's responsibility. And if someone simply stops short by saying, I have no problem with people that are different than me. I push the envelope a little bit further by saying, there are five levels of prejudice, and that was unearthed, that fact, by uh, Dr. Gordon Alport, a prolific sociologist at Harvard University, and you move from level one, which is when you speak badly about people of a different group, level five is when you're dealing with ethnic cleansing and wiping out people of a different uh, ethnicity because you just don't like them. And so I say, if there are five levels of prejudice, and prejudice, by the way, means prejudgment with emotions, there should then be five levels of reconciliation. So if we then pat ourselves on the back, like you said, thinking that, oh, we're, we're pretty good in this area, I'm challenging people to become level five in reconciliation, that is to have such a great influence that whole hordes and top of people, you're influencing them to become reconcilers and cross-cultural in their behavior. That's what I want to see the church do and take up. So is this similar in a sense to much like our relationship with, with Christ, that it's not enough to simply say we have repented, we have therefore been reconciled, and we've had restored relationship with God, that that falls short, that in fact that's only part A of what it means to be a disciple. The other big part of that equation is to then go out into all the world and share the good news of the evangel of the gospel and to reach others for Christ? And that's exactly it. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head, Craig. And that's the Great Commission. Jesus commissioned us. It wasn't optional. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Interestingly enough, that word nation, in the Greek language, it's the word ethnos, where we get the English word ethnic. So we ought to, we ought to go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnicity, which suggests we must be cross-cultural in our behavior and in our demeanor, so we can be able to be missional in our, in, in our actions. And so I think that talking about it is one thing, learning to do is another, and I think that's where we need coaching. Uh, what John Wooden, a former basketball coach for UCLA, said, a coach is someone who can give correction without causing resentment. And we need to be coached in how to be cross-cultural. That's what Paul did with Peter in, in Galatians 2, you know, at the church in Antioch. And so I, and that's what my book uh, endeavors to do. It comes alongside of people through practical stories, illustrations, proven methods, and saying, let me coach you in this area. Because I, I've been involved in, in building this church for the past 32 years, and it has now some 70 different nationalities. And so you're dealing with a, a church that's a very large church in our context, about 8,000 people, and it has... You know, it has the variation of nations represented from, in terms of ethnicity and culture and, and race. And so I've learned some things along the way. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I've learned some principles along the way 
that I believe can be used to coach people to become more cross-cultural. But in your case, that that sense of diversity, the more than 60 different nationalities, I think, that attend your church, that's not something that's accidental, is it? That's very intentional. That's on purpose, is it not? It is intentional, and the church grows transracially for specific reasons. And the overarching principle is that the only way people are going to come into your church that are different than you and and take up roots, so to speak, is that they gain something from being in your world that they can't gain from being in, in, in their own monocultural world. And then on a practical level, in the church, the three things that must happen. And it could be one of those three things in each particular church, but a church that's multiracial, these three things have to be at work. One is the, the worship experience. It must be something so transformational that people say, I'll drive by a hundred churches that everybody in those churches look just like me, but I'm coming to be with you because I gained something from being in your world that I can't gain from being my own. And that's the worship experience. The second is the sense of belonging, the experience of community. A person, again, will drive by a hundred churches that look just like everybody in there looks just like them. They chose to come and worship with you because they gained something from being in community with you that they can't gain from being anywhere else. Third is the pastor. Not the preaching, the person. Something flows out of that person's life that is so attractive to someone that they say, I want to be in your world because I'm gaining something from being with you that I can't gain from being with people of my own kind. And so when I say one of those three reasons must be at work, I didn't just pull these ideas out of thin air. When my, I did my doctoral dissertation years ago on the black-white relationship in large multiracial churches in America. So I went across the country and studied these multiracial churches and went through focus groups and a lot of evaluations and assessment and various research methods to understand why is this church multiracial? What's making it attractive to people? And when I went through all of the assessments and the analysis, Craig, it distilled down to those three specific reasons. And I tell people, there's some things, I can't control the sovereignty of God. When God does things sovereignly to create diversity, like the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in California, but what I can do is influence those three other areas. And so that's why I tell people, you can do this thing. And we tend sometimes, I think, too, as we even, if we even acknowledge that there's a problem, tend to see the solution to racial division as finger pointing. Well, it's what you're failing to do, what the other guy isn't doing. You're not getting along because you don't see things at my point. And uh, that's almost suggesting then as if the, the, the answer to this lies somewhere on the outside. But in fact, the whole issue here in relationship to the standard that God is trying to establish insofar as reconciliation and relationship really puts the onus on each and every one of us, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that we have to be confronted. And confrontation, it works two ways. One, it can either be internal, where I'm convicted by my conscience, I'm pricked by my behavior, my values seem to be in discord, and so it bothers me, so I change. The other way is external, someone from the outside. And that's what just happened just a couple of days ago with this incident that took place at Starbucks in Philadelphia that you pointed out at the top of the program, or at the top of the hour, is the fact that, uh, that the accusation of racial bias, it 
created a confrontation to Starbucks empire, so to speak. And so on May 29th, Howard Schultz, the executive chairman, he decided that I'm going to shut down all 8,000 stores and we're going to offer anti-bias training for 175,000 employees across the nation. Bold move on their part. It's a costly move. They're putting their money where their mouth is because they're going to lose tons of money doing this. But yet, the end result is that because of confrontation, I think the public backlash was the confrontation, external. They're now saying, let's make some changes. And I think the church has a responsibility. We've been confronted by Scripture, and Jesus has given us this mandate to be cross-cultural. And I think we owe it to each of you know, to ourselves to say, let me grow in diversity. And that's why we need coaches. We, we need that so importantly. And that's what this book is a coaching book. It's saying, let me coach you to be able to be cross-cultural. But we have to want it. We have to want to be coached. And of course, the other irony at the end of the day, whether we're talking about reconciliation on the vertical plane between God and man or the horizontal plane between each other, it comes down to a question of heart. We're going to talk about that when we come back. We'll talk about the attitude of the heart when it comes to racial reconciliation. Our visit today with Dr. David Ireland, his new book, One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. Right now, though, at uh, 16 past the hour, let's get you a look at traffic. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center and a big hello and salute to Michael Bennett, who's got the latest. Hey, Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. David Ireland, our first hour guest tonight. He, of course, is the founding pastor of Christ Church in New Jersey. More information, by the way, about his ministry online at davidireland.org. That's davidireland.org. His latest book, One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides, newly released by Regnery Press. And, of course, Regnery is also owned by the same fine folks that own this radio station. Let's talk about the heart aspect of this, Dr. Ireland. I, I have to wonder, in, in relationship to addressing broken relationships, certainly on the vertical plane, and I would suspect equally on the horizontal plane, there are a number of steps here. For example, to be reconciled to God, we first need to repent, and to get to the point of repentance, it suggests that we need to recognize our sin condition. Is this process equally so when it comes to racial reconciliation? And at the end of the day, the heart condition, the sin condition is something that we really have to wrestle with and confront? Absolutely. I think that uh, a good example of that is in Galatians 2, where Paul confronted Peter. You know, Peter, who was one of the primary apostles at the Church of Jerusalem, he came down to Antioch, and Antioch, that church, was very multiracial, very transcultural, very multi-ethnic. Paul was the senior guy there. And, and Peter, as you know, was hanging out with the Gentile believers, no problem. But the moment other Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem, Peter started to pull away socially, no longer eat with them, no longer fellowship, fellowship with them, because he was struggling in his ability to be cross-cultural. Paul confronted him, because what Paul was trying to help him understand that monocultural versus multicultural ministry is different. And Peter was struggling in his ability to be diverse, and it was a matter of the heart, and that's where Paul went for. Paul went to, for Peter's heart to try to get him to understand, if you really love people, if you love your neighbors yourself, that love will not be limited 
only when certain people are around or when they're not around. And so the point you're making, as well as I'm underscoring, is the fact that it is a matter of the heart. Until it becomes valuable to me to really love someone who's different than me, I'm not going to really strive at it. So it starts in the heart. And, and it perhaps also is reflective of the nature, the tone, the tenor of our relationship with God himself. And, and I, I say that because at the end of the day, things like uh, culture, language, food uh, are things that are unique about many different races and backgrounds and so forth. And while we may have differences in those areas of culture and language and food, but at the end of the day, we all have to recognize that we're all created in the image of the same God, and we are all redeemed by the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet that's a point maybe that becomes a sticking one for a lot of people. Yeah, and that is a fundamental point. In fact, uh, one of the stories I bring out you know, in, in my book is this example, that in the early 1960s, a friend of mine was a missionary in Kenya. He happened to be a white American, and I tell you his race and his nationality for a reason. He goes to Kenya, and he's going to stay there for a number of years to try to reach Kenyans for Christ. And he did something that his host told him not to do. He says, look, you're new to the country, you don't know the language, you don't know the people. Don't drive into the marketplace to run errands. Let me take you. And so he disobeyed. He just drove into the marketplace trying to run some errands. And sure enough, he gets a flat tire. So he goes to the trunk of the car, and he pulls out the spear, and then he just notices that there's no jack to hoist up the car. So he's stuck. No telephone, no cell phones back in those days. And here he is, doesn't speak Swahili, doesn't know anyone, and you know he looks odd because everyone there is black. He's white. And so this whole thing, he's struggling. He doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, the thought dawns on him. Let me yell out the word hallelujah. And if there are Christians here... They'll know that word, and they'll know, and they'll respond to me. Sure enough, he yells out at the top of his voice, "Hallelujah!" And this is in the marketplace; people are walking up and down doing their stuff. And all of a sudden, some big burly men turn back around and yell at him, "Hallelujah!" And so he motions to them with his hand, in other words, "Come close to me." And he's not; he can't say anything other than "Hallelujah." He says, "Hallelujah!" And he's motioning, and they're coming towards him, saying, "Hallelujah!" Each step. And so he, when they get to him, he points to the flat tire, and he says, hallelujah, hallelujah, and he motions to them to pick up the car, hallelujah, hallelujah, and these big guys pick up that end of the car, he took off the flat tire, put on the, the spare, and, you know, bolted it, put the nuts on it, and then waved at them saying goodbye, saying hallelujah, hallelujah, and, and off he went, and he recognized, and his action, true story, his action signified that if we really have accepted Christ as Savior, There's this commonality that we share above anything else, above our race, above our nationality, above our language. And he proved that point there in the marketplace in Kenya that day. And so, and, and I'm saying, and you're saying as well, Craig, that there must be this change in our hearts. And when this change happens in our hearts, it's going to make this whole race situation a lot easier. So we must go for the heart. And in going for the heart, this has to be very genuine, does it not? And, and uh, you know, of course, that, that that's an oxymoronic uh, question in, in, insofar as it, it sort of answers itself. But, but I pose that because oftentimes we will try to force the issue in a way that is not because I genuinely recognize the need to repent or my sin or recognize the need to move closer to God by being more inclusive, 
by embracing the other, so to speak, that we kind of do it because of uh, political correctness. For example, you mentioned Starbucks earlier in the book, One in Christ. You, you cite a bit of an embarrassment for them again back in 2015 when they started the uh, ill-fated Race Together initiative. And right. um, at the end of the day, that, that exploded on them. It backfired on them because it seemed to be very forced that while perhaps the intentions were genuine, the approach wasn't all that genuine. Talk to us, if you yeah. would, Dr. Ireland, about the importance of being genuine before God, both in terms of the repentance as well as the, the, the end result, the end desire, the end goal. I think that the campaign that that Starbucks initiated in 2015 called Race Together, they were, in essence, having their baristas start cold conversations with strangers coming in there for a cup of coffee or a cappuccino, and they're thinking that that's going to create this sense of intimacy, connectedness. It's more than that, and that's why this example just a couple of days ago in Philadelphia, Starbucks is really just another slap in the face. But I'm thankful that they're moving ahead. But as you pointed out, the whole issue of really being genuine, one of the, the, the foundations of and becomes a proof of racial health or interracial, healthy interracial relationships is this issue of vulnerable conversations. When I'm able to have a vulnerable conversation with someone of another race, it's a sign that I have a certain measure of strength or our, our cross-race relationship has achieved a certain measure of strength. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit further. If I put myself in the position of being a student, a learner, because most people want to be teachers. They always want to give instruction and give direction. So if I say to someone who's of a different race than me that I want to learn, I want to grow in really understanding your culture and your ethnicity, if I say something that's foolish or short-sighted, please correct me. And the moment I say something like that, automatically that person is more empathetic towards me. They're going to take a posture of coaching towards me because they realize I may have some myths, I may have some suspicions and thoughts that need to be removed from my mind, but the only way it's going to be removed is when I have a vulnerable conversation with them. And so I preface it by saying, I just want to learn. And when I do that, they want to teach. And so I think that that's part of the whole idea of coaching people in this area of diversity, which it requires humility oftentimes for us to grow in being cross-cultural. And I guess, too, to understand that our accountability in that sense is not just to each other insofar as being genuine, but also in front of very God himself. I mean, Jesus was the one who said, you know, as people proclaiming, hey, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful miracles in your name? And he said, get behind me, Satan. I knew you not. So that sense of being genuine both in front of each other, being vulnerable, but it's also critically important because at the end of the day, to whom this matters most is very God himself. He, he, he has the desire, doesn't he, Dr. Ireland, that his creation should be able to not only walk in fellowship with him, but that we as the bride of Christ, as the community of the church, should be able to get together and get along. Yeah, it, it does require that major step of authenticity, and oftentimes it's learned. To be a disciple of Christ is a learned process. And so it, it takes us wanting to learn. And I think one of the methods I use in coaching people to become more cross-cultural is the whole idea of making the distinction between tolerance and accommodation. 
And when we tolerate people, there's nothing positive about that. People are, they feel being, that you're putting up with them, that you prefer not to be around them. And if a person's awkward in social settings with someone of a different race, that speaks of tolerance and it speaks that they need to grow. So I, the contrast I say is don't tolerate people but accommodate them. Open your heart, make space for the difference. And an example I always use is that this generalization I'm about to say that men and women shop differently. You know, when I got married 34 years ago, I thought when my wife said, honey, let's go to the mall, I want to pick up a pair of blue slacks. And so I said, cool, let's do it. And so I thought she was going to do shop the way I shopped. I was a hunter. I would go in, bag a pair of slacks, bag of shoes, bag a tie. I'm in and out in a few minutes, and I'm happy, to, and I, I'm thankful. But she didn't, didn't shop that way. Neither does she, does she do that today. She was going on a safari. Yeah, this is not a so goal. This is an experience. <laughs> exactly. We're going to take this whole thing in. This is going to be a real, you know, <laughs> baptism in culture and shopping. And, and every time we went to a store, I said, let's, you try on a pair of slacks. She tried it on. The size was right. Price was right. I said, let's get it. She said, oh, no, let's go and try on it. Let's, let me go and try on another one. I've walked two miles in that, in, in that mall. <laughs> My hair started to stick up like Don King, the boxing promoter. I was so angry. <laughs> and so I'm saying, why are you doing this? You're torturing me. And what I learned, that I was at that time, I was 22 years old, got married early. I was so immature that I was really tolerating my wife, making her feel bad. And it, was, it spoke to my immaturity and my unwillingness to let her be herself in my midst. I was trying to force her to be a hunter rather than be able to go on a safari. As I matured over the years, that I've learned then, and you'd think that after 34 years I was able to convert her to be a hunter. Not so. Neither was she able to convert me to be able to go on a safari when we shop. But when I do go shopping with her now, I take a book with me. And so she doesn't feel pressured, she doesn't feel devalued, she feels accommodated. So I use that same principle when, when coaching people to understand diversity. And so in our churches, there may be a preference of music styles, music taste, but then if we really want to have a cross-cultural, multiracial church, we have to then say, let's create people that understand accommodation, so that it's not all about me, it's not all about what I like, it's about me enjoying you enjoying God, me also experiencing you having an encounter with God, and that being valuable to me. So accommodation is a foundation for diversity. And that comes full circle to this notion that God wants us to be genuine not only in our relationship with him, but genuine in our relationships with each other. That being quote-unquote PC or politically correct doesn't get it. At the end of the day, if you're doing that, folks are going to know, they're going to figure out that you're just trying to be tolerant or you're just grandstanding for the moment. You're not really genuine. And so the notion of being accepting and accommodating is really the difference. And, and that, that leads me to remembering something I read in M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, that I'll, I'll ask Dr. Ireland about when we come back after the break. If you've tuned in a bit late, uh, wonderful conversation with a special guest today, Dr. David Ireland. He, of course, is the founding pastor of Christ Church in New Jersey, author of a new book called One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. You can pick up a copy for yourself at uh, Bay Area bookstores. You can also order it online through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, or through Dr. Ireland's website at davidireland.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Dr. David Ireland as Lifeline continues. 
Right now, though, let's get around the corner to help out. Here's a look at traffic with Michael Bennett at 534. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation with best-selling author Dr. David Ireland, the book One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. When we talk, Dr. Ireland, about diversity, reconciliation, uh, my thought before the break went to something I read in M. Scott Peck's best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled. He says that love isn't merely a feeling, but a decision based on action. Is the same thing true when it comes to racial reconciliation and diversity, that getting this sense of coming together and experiencing community together is not something that happens accidentally, but has to be very intentional? Oh, absolutely. It must be. In fact, uh, the scriptures even speak that we ought not to love in word or in deed, but in and I'm sorry, well, not to be loved simply in, in, in word, but also in deed, D-E-E-D, and in truth. And so it, it's, you know, M. Scott Peck's book, which I've read also, I enjoyed the book a few ago, is that it does support the idea that love must be, it must be fleshed out and lived. I can't love my wife on a theoretical level or abstract level. She wants to feel loved and see actions of love to support my, my emotional convictions. And, and I think uh, people that are different than ourselves want to see the same thing. And they want to know that they feel valued, that they are valued, that they feel regard and worth. And that's what it means to have this sense of, uh, of diversity and ownership of it. It's not good enough for us to simply say in our minds that I love people that are different than me. Sounds good, sounds nice, but it's not scripture. The Scripture teaches us that we have to love our enemies as we love ourselves. And so that speaks of an action, a fleshing out, a living out, a walking out of our love in practical ways. And so that's what, again, I come back to Paul's dialogue with Peter. That's what Paul was dealing with Peter about. Peter was just, you know, you know he was just hanging out with the, the Jewish believers and eating with them. And... Paul was saying, look, you can't do that. If you really are a follower of Jesus, you have to be able to show equal regard to people that are different than yourselves. You know, and uh, and uh, that was what Jesus told Nicodemus in that famous verse, John 3, 16. You know, Nicodemus, this first century Jewish leader, in the centerpiece of the conversation that Jesus had with him when he came to Jesus at night, when he was confused about what exactly is right and wrong in regards to spiritual direction and, and spiritual focus. And then Jesus lays down that centerpiece in the conversation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And whosoever believes him will not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus's mind was blown by that because the first century Jew thought that God loves the Jew, God loves Israel. And when Jesus says God loves the world, it rattled his mind. In other words, he's saying that, Jesus was saying that God loves everybody everywhere, even those who don't love him. And so it leads right to that very point now. Love has to be felt. Love has to be acted upon. Love has to be demonstrated. And that's where diversity has to come to. It can't just be that we love people in the, in the theoretical concept. It must be walked out in the social construct of life. And in your book, you, you take it even a step further, your book, One in Christ, where this is not simply a feel-good initiative. It's not the notion of, well, it'd just be nice for all of us to get along. You say, and I quote, racial isolation is a cancer to the call of God 
to walk in unity. So it essentially then suddenly has shifted into God is serious about this. We need to be serious about this. And this is sort of like the difference between people that have different callings, different gifts, versus all of us that are called to be disciples and make disciples. It really is a mandate then. It is. And racial isolation has been proven by so many sociologists down through the years that when we isolate ourselves, it further widens the divide. It, it reinforces prejudice. That's why the whole notion of separate but equal with regards to education in our country didn't work, and it proved to be very biased, very flawed, and an action of prejudice. Likewise, when the church segregates itself on Sunday mornings, it's not healthy. It doesn't demonstrate Christ, and it further widens the divide between the races. And so we need to then think about, particularly with the browning and tanning of America, that is, uh, we're seeing a greater diversity in our nation across racial lines. The church must understand how to navigate those waters and be able to be a trendsetter and not just be someone that follows the, uh, the, the, the party line of, of the greater uh, secular society. We must be able to model diversity. And you've perhaps touched on the absolute crux of the matter here that as much as we've seen Black Lives Matter and protests and movements and discussions and debate taking place uh, within society in a more broad, general way, if we look, for example, at some of the great leaps forwards in racial reconciliation, um, is this a time and a calling, a wake-up call, so to speak, to the church, that as much as the church stood up and took the lead in the movements toward civil rights in the 1950s and 60s that we need to do so today? In other words, it's not just enough to say, hey, we need to pass some laws. Congress needs to get involved. We need to be nicer. We need to take on the Rodney King. Let's just all get along approach. But really that it becomes then the church and our responsibility to not only be a part of this, but to be the head, to be the leader. We have to be salt and light, Craig, and absolutely. I think the church is supposed to be the the example, the model. We're supposed to provide you know, illustrations and methodology and show people how to do it. And so when we have our act together as a church, then we're able to communicate it to the greater society, and they are looking to us as a case study and saying, let's see you guys show us how to do it. And when we show them how to do it, it'll be amazing. In fact, I did some consulting for the National Basketball Association over the years on diversity. And what got me that quote-unquote gig, so to speak, is the fact that one of the NBA players had come to my church. I'm teaching on diversity. And then he's saying, hey, can you teach that in the league, particularly to rookies throughout the rookie transition program? There are about 80 new rookies that come into the NBA every year. And uh, basketball has become an international sport. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. And so I contextualized the message, took the same essence, same principles. I just took out Bible verses because that was not the preaching forum. It was a consulting forum, you know, speaking to secular guys who wanted to learn how to get along and show, you know, that we're different from one another. And so I taught them. And, and they grew in their ability to model diversity. And so what we're saying is really at work that if the church espouses biblical principles in a very practical way in terms of race relations, not only will we, will we have exemplary multicultural churches and interracial churches, we'll also have 
powerful Christ followers that can take the truth of the principles of the Word of God and apply it to their work life in the marketplace, and we'll see a greater level of not only regard and respect and decorum taking place, but also healthier cross-race relationships in a broader society. So the Church has to stand up and say, not on our watch, not anymore, let's be modelers of diversity. The book, then, is not just an example of how this has played out at Christ Church in New Jersey. It's not just anecdotal or filled with lots of encouraging stories, but it becomes a handbook, really, to understand how each of us as believers should and need to become true reconcilers, true understanding of the process of recognition of our sin, repentance, reconciliation, which then ultimately leads to restored relationships, which is exactly the design that God has for us, not only on the vertical plane, but the horizontal as well. The book, again, is called One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides, newly published by Regnery Faith. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay, about the Bay Area, as well as at Dr. Ireland's website, davidireland.org. And our thanks again to Dr. David Ireland for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. All right, let's get caught up on some traffic here. We're going to head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Then we've got a conversation about you and your health. Dr. John Duong joins us momentarily right now, though. Michael Bennett, he's our expert when it comes to traffic. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome to our continuing educational series on better health and better living with Dr. John Duong from the Holistic Health Center. Dr. Duong, great to have you back with us again. You've got a fascinating story, and I think one that in many respects will help listeners better understand not only your approach to medicine, but your approach to your patients and why you get the remarkable results that you do. There's a very personal story here. Tell us what that is. Um, like over 10 years ago, what happened is my dad has an open heart surgery. That's a big opening for me. He had open heart surgery and he was diabetic and carrying back medication, high blood pressure, um, cholesterol medications, and diabetes medication. And he's carrying back of medication, and yet he's still ha- um, going through an open heart surgery. And during the surgery, this really wakes me up, and it, my heart was crushed, and it really wakes me up because as a chiropractor, I always think that the powers that creates the body heals the body from the inside out. It has to be a way out. So I, I know and I pray for it, and um, and I said there must be a way out, and I believe it. That's within my soul that there is a way to help my dad. Not only helping my dad, but also help myself because I think what happened as a society? Are we getting healthier or are we getting sicker? The answer is sicker. If I don't take care of myself now, then what's going to be happening? I will have an open-heart surgery at the age of 50 because we share the similar genes. So it wake me up, so that's why I started studying nutrition. I study chiropractic in depth, and I I study acupuncture, and all I put everything in perspective. I put all the pieces together. How does the body heal itself? So I come and I travel around the world um, mastermind with other doctors so I can learn the system how to heal the body from within and I would like to share to the world of how you can of any chronic disease any chronic condition we believe the healing is inside the body your body can heal from within what do we do when we come to the clinic 
together we create a habit. You have to have a habit to get a result. We create a healing habit which allow your body, your mind, and your soul to heal from within. As a result, what do you do? You live a quality life. The reason that you put in it on this earth, there must be a reason. We need to live our life to the optimal. So now we can function to serve God. So when a patient comes to you that has been dealing with health challenges and physical pain, maybe for years, they have seen of a multiplicity of doctors, they've been on a variety of medications and pills, they feel like a walking pharmacy, and yet there has been no improvement to their quality of life. There has been virtually no change or improvement to the pain, sometimes to the point of being debilitating. What do you say to that patient? The word is belief. Belief that the body can heal itself. The healing is inside your system. We just need to find a way and find out what is wrong with this healing mechanism, and the body will heal itself. Does a lot of it have to do with not only diet, but exercise, environment? I mean, for example, you speak of the individual who maybe is diabetic. Typically, the physician would prescribe, say, insulin to deal with that, suggesting what? That there's an insulin shortage? It's not an insulin shortage. Usually, diabetes is not a blood sugar problem. It's an insulin resistant. Look at the history is that the more that you're trying to take medications to reducing the blood sugars, what happened? Your blood sugars get worse. That's why you met one medication after another medications. So what you need to do is we need to find out approaches is what's wrong with me from the inside? So that's why I explained it in the videos that I made, like two minutes and 40 seconds, it explained really well. I am uh, Thomas Edison doctors. What it explained is that he said the future of doctors will not prescribe medication, but teach their patients in the care of the human frame, in diet, and also the cost and the preventions of disease. So I use that as model. That's why I, I said I am Thomas Edison's uh, doctors. So when a client comes to you, how do you specifically work with a patient? Find out what are their needs. Okay, how can you heal the body from within? Like for example, like talk about like the diabetes. What we need to do is that understanding is there an issue with other organs that you you're having. So the blood test is important, and then also genetic. Now we have the ability to see your weaknesses from the inside out using genetic testing. So. For example, diabetes, what are the major organ that is controlling blood sugars? How about liver that's making sugar so it can alter your sugars level, right? How about your pancreas? Pancreas makes insulin. Is there any issue with the pancreas? How about if there's any insulin with the adrenal gland? How about the brain because the brain controls everything, the hypothalamus, the hormones? So we need to know where are the possibility of the issues using lab tests to find out. Remember, remember, and remember, the structure is very important. That's what Thomas Edison said, the care of the human frame. Because in your spine, there's nervous system going from the brain to the spine into the organs. If there's any problem with the spine, does it affect your brain? Definitely. If there's any problem with the organ, does it affect the spine, causing arthritis? The classic example that people know is RA. If you have inflammatory process, does it affect the spine and your joint, right? Of course, it's interrelated. Your body has interrelated. So the care of the 
human frame. How about acupunctures? What does the acupuncture do to your body? It helps you increasing the voltage so now the body can heal. The acupuncture, the chiropractic, physical therapy, massage therapy, occupational therapy, all those are dealing directly with what? With the spine. Why is dealing with the spine so important? Because it has the vital nerve flows, nutrients, and the body can use those energy to heal. For example, why are people getting, you feel so good and your body is able to heal when you exercise? Anytime you exercise, the body generate the voltage so that your body can use it to heal. But what if you have an issue with the misalignment, right? And the spine is not flowing, the nerve flow, the circulation, the airway is not flowing correctly, does that affect your health? Most definitely. Can you feel tired if you have slouch and you have a bad posture? Can you feel tired? Of course. But when you sit up, right, we have more energy. The circulation is flowing better. My point is that care of the human frame is important. The diet is important. Now we have the genetic testing. We can test the weaknesses of your liver detoxification process. Your DNA replicates needs white methylations. Your body needs to be methylated correctly for your immune system to function better. Okay, so Your nervous system needs to be methylated correctly. How about your neurotransmitters? A lot of thyroid patients, a lot of diabetes patients, what do they feel? They feel pressure in the head, anxiety, some kind of brain-related issue, brain fog. So genetic, genetic tests allow us to see what are the genetic issues on the neurotransmitters so we were able to see that. How about mitochondria mitochondria is where energy is made do you feel tired do you feel very tired when you feel tired then you feel sick so what do you do you need to take a look at the mitochondria and see what is going on with your genetic weaknesses the final one is going to be on information a lot of people has this information that's give us a lot of answers in genetic testing regarding gluten sensitivities we want IBS issue, so, and then inflammatory process. What kind of food can you be eating that's causing your body to inflame? How is your body respond to inflame? How come people has more autoimmunity? Why is your immune system attacking itself? So the genetic testing in the inflammatory uh, process give us a lot of ideas. What is your body weaknesses are? So. Once we know the weaknesses, what do we do? We give them the right nutrient diet, right supplement at the right time for the right indication. So now the body can use that energy, those food, that supplement to heal the body from within. That's how you solve a chronic pain, any chronic disease. That's how you fix it. It's fix the body from within. So if you are a patient who has maybe suffered for years or years from health challenges, physical pain, chronic pain, you've been to doctor after doctor, you've taken medication after medication, and just resigned yourself to a life of pain, let me tell you about a very special offer. Right now, Dr. Duong is offering a free consultation to somebody that's exactly in your place, dealing with that pain without answers. Maybe you're taking pills and medicine right and left. You feel like a walking pharmacy, and yet your life is not any better. Call today and schedule your free consultation with Dr. John Duong at the Holistic Health Center. You can get more information on the web at drduonglive.com. That's doctor abbreviated, D-R-Duong, D-U-O-N-G, 
www.dr.duonglive.com, drduonglive.com, or you can call simply toll-free 800-470-0828 to schedule that free consultation. Again, a special offer particularly for patients that are dealing with long-term chronic pain, discomfort, health challenges, and you're just on the edge about to give up, call today for your free consultation. No obligation when you dial 800-470-0828. That's 800-470-0828, or again online at Live. Doctor, we appreciate your time and the insights. Thank you. And remember, the body can heal from within. Find out, fix it, and enjoy your life. Dr. Duong at 800-470-0828. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com salemnow.com